0: Well, we are in a series, as you know, called Jesus And, where all of the difficult issues of the last 18 months, we've kind of gone, you know what, we'll save them for this series. And we'll talk about Jesus and all these various difficult topics that we've been navigating as followers of Jesus. And so the next few weeks, we'll be looking more specifically into individual topics, such as uh, politics, Jesus and politics, Jesus and ethics, Jesus... And all sorts of things. But these first few weeks have been laying the foundation for this conversation. As we lay the foundation for what it means to follow Jesus and to know what he has to say as followers of him. So week one, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus and this cultural moment. Looking at the cultural moment where truth is defined through our feelings, truth is defined through our own desires. And how Jesus calls us out of the authoritative self and the imminent frame into a life of following Jesus as king. And that his way leads to the true life that we've been created for. Last week we looked more fully then at the message of Jesus as the message called the gospel of the kingdom. That Jesus calls us as the king into his kingdom. That what it means to be a follower of Jesus is literally that to become a follower of King Jesus, to lay aside our own authority and to follow the man with the crown, King Jesus. You can't have the kingdom without the king. And so we've come to week three when we then ask the inevitable question well, how do we know what Jesus as king wants us to do? How do we know what he has for us? How do we know? in which way He's leading us so that we can follow Him. And inevitably, then, that raises the question, what do we do with the Bible? What do we do with the Bible? We are living in what people call a post-Bible Christianity. A post-Bible Christianity. Where everyone's asking, to borrow the phrase from The Sound of Music, what do we do with a problem like the Bible? (laughs) So this morning we're looking at Jesus and biblical authority. Jesus and biblical authority. Everyone just goes, no. (laughs) People are struggling with the Bible. When I grew up, people would read it a lot. I think most people today haven't opened it in a while. And I understand why because we're asking lots of questions about the bible more than ever before is it archaic it's just confusing it's untrustworthy people interpret it in so many different ways to meet their own agendas it seems out of date how can we etc cetera, etc cetera. lots of great questions and people are confused in how to move forward with this thing called the bible so we're going to ask three questions this morning what is the bible what is biblical authority and what is biblical interpretation? Now before we dig into these three questions, I wanna give some disclaimers. The first of which is this. These three questions would normally fill in seminary about two semesters. So I'll be again skimming the rock off the top of these issues. And there'll be lots of nuances, lots of areas which I'm not able to speak about. And sometimes you'll be, have raised really good questions through this talk that I can't fully answer. And therefore, like the other talks and sermons so far in the series, I'm going to recommend some resources for you. In three categories, resources for everyone, uh, chunky resources, and even chunkier resources. So for everyone, everyone should be really familiar, if you're not already, with the Bible Project. As we rediscover our love for the Word. So many of my, my questions, so many of my challenges that I've faced have been helpfully discussed and resolved through the resources of the Bible project. Secondly, Amy Orr Ewing has written a great book called "Is Why Trust the Bible? And then thirdly, N.T. Wright, Surprised by Scripture. These are accessible for everyone. Now, chunky resources for everyone in the room, clearly, is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee, which is kind of the gold standard of biblical interpretation. The Language of God by Francis Collins is actually a great example of a scientist, a very eminent scientist, who wrestles with Genesis 1 and 2. And then chunkier reads. These are really, um, if if you want to lock yourself in a room for months on end and read some great stuff. So John Walton's stuff is fantastic on Genesis, his book on the lost world of Genesis 1. He then has Genesis 2 and then Genesis later on as well looking at the ancient Near East context of, uh, of these writings. And then Richard Borkham's text on Jesus and the eyewitnesses, the gospel as eyewitness testimony, really helps us understand why we can trust what was written is truly what happened. And then the, the theology of the book of Revelation, again by Richard Borkham, a wonderful, wonderful uh, and compelling understanding of what the authors were trying to get across in Revelation. But saying that... Let's dig in where we can. So, fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. This is going to be more of a lecture than a sermon. Forgive me. What is the Bible? Number one, what is the Bible? Well, we need to go straight away to the text, the classical text in 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17 All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed. That word literally in the Greek means to breathe out by God. That scripture is divinely inspired. But not in a way that it was simply inspired to be a book that we discovered that God himself wrote, but it was, as we know, Inspired through human authors. That this book is mysteriously both divinely inspired and written through human authors. In fact, many human authors over a period of many years, about 1500 years in fact, with at least 40 different authors kings, scholars, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, historians, and doctors. And they wrote different types of literature, such as poetry, history, prophecy, apocalyptic. Literature and letters. It's 100 the work, 100% the work of humans and 100% inspired by God. How this fits together, of course, is ultimately a mystery in the same way that Jesus is a mystery, fully man and fully God. But it helped me when someone explained it like this. I used to work near a beautiful building called St. Paul's Cathedral. We have a picture of it on the screen. It was built by Sir Christopher Wren, the greatest architect of England at the time. He started aged 44 in the year 1676. And for 35 years, the cathedral was built under one architect. It was completed in 1711 when Wren was 79 years of age. And Sir Christopher Wren built St. Paul's Cathedral. But actually, he didn't lay himself a single stone. Other people put the stones in. Many different builders were involved over many different years. But there was one mind, one architect, one inspiration behind it. And so it is with the Bible. Many different writers, one architect, but one inspiration behind it all, God himself. The Bible is therefore God's own revelation of himself. He reveals Himself to us through Scripture. He inspires these authors to reveal His nature, His story, His character. Of course, the supreme revelation of God is in Jesus Christ. God on display in humanity. The writer to the Hebrews says, In the past, God spoke in many and various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken through His Son, Jesus. This is God's ultimate revelation. And the way we know about Jesus, the ultimate revelation of God, is through written revelation. Just as God revealed himself as Yahweh in the Old Testament, the New Testament describes the picture even further by showing us the revelation of Jesus. Of course, we know revelation of God appears in different ways, as the Hebrew writers have said, through creation When you're sitting down and you're looking over the beautiful vista of the beach and the sun is rising or setting, you can't help but realize that the heavens declare the glory and the majesty of God. Science as well. If you're a scientist, you're looking into these amazing intricacies of how God has designed this universe. And it displays the splendor and the wisdom and the architecture and the beauty of God. I was a lawyer and We could see in every human heart the desire for justice and mercy and love. And this displays the echo of our God himself, who's a God of justice, love, and mercy, and has made humanity in his image. But these are not enough as revelations to live our life with all the complexities of what it means to follow Jesus. So Jesus has come to reveal to us God, and he has given to us his word to know his ways, his will. Without it, we'd be fumbling around in the dark. Without it, we would be lost in his instruction to follow him. And this is why we have the Bible. It's God's revelation of himself and of Jesus, fully man, fully God. It's the authoritative revelation. Now, we believe this. Not because Timothy, Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 3.16. We believe this because Jesus believed it. We believe this because this is how Jesus viewed the Scriptures. Jesus believed in the inspiration and authority of Scripture. And why do we take Jesus' opinion seriously? Well, because he rose from the dead. As I explained on Alpha so much, the claims of the Bible, the claims of Christianity are not just man-made up, wonderful worldview suggestions, but they are the claims of a man who rose from the dead. If he didn't rise from the dead, then we shouldn't believe a word he said. But since he rose from the dead, we work backwards and go, oh my word, therefore we have to take seriously what he said, not just about his life, not just about his mission, not just about his identity, but also how he viewed the Scriptures. Jesus, the risen God, believed the Scriptures to be God's authoritative revelation. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. He said of the Hebrew Scriptures, not one little bit, jot or tittle in the old English uh, translation, would pass away from God's Word until it was fulfilled. In Matthew 19, he referred to the writings of Genesis as, this is what God said, So put divine authorship onto onto the book of Genesis. In Matthew chapter 4, he used Scripture in his battle with the spiritual enemy in the wilderness. Not just as a Harry Potter's book of spells, but he used Scripture as his foundation to trust in his Father. And in Luke 24, when the resurrected Jesus was comforting two disciples on the road to Emmaus when they were confused and distraught, it said that he opened up the Scriptures and showed how all the prophets and the writings of Moses were fulfilled in him. So to Jesus, what Scripture says, God says. As John Stott, A. Beloved theologian and pastor with the Lord now wrote this. We do not believe in biblical authority simply because we want to be dogmatic about certain of our beliefs. Nor because the church has consistently taught this, though it has. Nor because we just feel the Bible is true as we read it. No. The overriding reason for accepting the divine inspiration and authority of Scripture is plain loyalty to Jesus. Our understanding of everything is conditioned by what Jesus taught. And that includes his teaching about the Bible. We have no liberty to exclude anything from Jesus' teaching and say, I believe what he taught about this, but not what he taught about that. What possible right do we have to be selective? And over the last two years, this is what we're prone to do with all these very difficult, complex issues that we're faced with society. Issues around um, racial injustice, around politics, around the right or the left, around civil obedience, civil disobedience, wear masks, not masks, vaccine, no vaccine, do we meet on church, do we not meet on Sundays, etc., etc., etc. You can throw in a lot more, right? We're tempted to go to the Bible and find bits we like and agree with and ignore the bits we don't. And we treat the Bible as a pick and mix. But of course, as, and, uh, as John Sott says, what possible right do we have to be selective? And as Tim Keller says to heavyweight authorities here, why should we trust in Jesus as Savior if we are wiser and smarter than he is? Either he is who he said he is, and his views judge our views, or he was lying or deluded about the Son of God, about being the Son of God. So Jesus' authority and the absolute authority of the Bible stand or fall together. If we believe He was who we said He was, then we must accept the entire Bible as God's Word. Now, I had two real problems with this. If this is God's Word, then I'm faced with two challenges. If this is the inspired revelation of God, then I've got two real issues. The first is this. But can I trust it because it seems to have all sorts of problems. I remember when I first discovered, oh my word, the Gospels were written way after Jesus was alive. There were loads of different people. All these monks were probably mistranslating and putting their own thing in as they copied the scripts. Didn't a bunch of like, men decide which books of the Bible to keep and which bits to throw out? How do I trust that? And the Old Testament seems really different different is a nice word. It seems like full of stuff that we would like be against today. It seems a very different type of god than Jesus. And I remember when I was first discovering these questions thinking, "Oh my word. I think I've just discovered something no one's ever seen before." <laughs> and I went off to seminary and realized and to my shame and embarrassment that what I thought were questions and situations that would absolutely just defeat the Bible. Far from it. We've been asking these questions, and these have been obvious for 2,000 years. And there's been many really great answers to all these questions. It just so happens that these answers and these questions have only recently been discussed again by Dan Brown in movies like that. And when you go to college and your liberal professor says, did you know? Did you know that there are factual errors in the Bible? Did you know? That there were lots of different people claiming to be the Messiah in the first century. Did you know? And suddenly, because we've never faced these before and have answers to them, then we think it's like a house of cards and our faith collapses. Now, I don't have time in in this morning slot to answer all of those questions. I gave you some great resources to go read. But can I just encourage you, if you've got those questions, they're great questions, but there are amazing answers that have meant that people throughout the centuries don't have the foundation of the Bible taken out from under them. But the other question is, well, okay, so maybe this is what Jesus is saying. Maybe this is authoritative to me, but the other issue is, I don't like it. <laughs> I just don't like it. it ask me to do stuff I don't want to do. And that really is a lot of the issue, isn't it? Is that often we've come to Jesus with with what I call agreement theology versus obedient theology. See, in agreement theology, we come to Jesus and go, oh, Jesus thinks just like me. This is amazing. (laughs) And what he says about generosity, I love that. What he says about this, I love that. And the stuff that we agree with, we find no problem in working out and following Jesus. The problem is Jesus doesn't teach an agreement theology. He teaches an obedience theology, which presupposes that there's going to be some stuff we don't agree with. See, obedience is only obedience when you don't agree. And that's when you've got to decide who is really boss around here, who is really the king around here. The Bible expects you to be out of step with the teachings of Jesus, and really, really significantly. That's why in 2 Timothy three sixteen it says all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Even Paul envisages a situation where you have to be rebuked because you so don't want to do the things of Jesus. Is it against your desires? It's against what you think is human flourishing. It's against what you want to do. It's against... So much of what your worldview, maybe it's because you've been discipled by culture. Maybe it's because of your hurt in the past that you're wanting to bring in to the future. I don't know what it is, but I find it in my own heart that I will look at some of the teachings of Jesus and go, I don't want to do it. And over the last 18 months, we found this dissonance on display in the church. Where we've got people on one extreme saying, I don't care. This is literally true, what I've heard, Uh, telephone conversations and emails. I don't care what the Bible says about that. I'm going to do this. go, wow. I'm not too sure I can continue in the same conversation then. And whether that be on one extreme about ethics or one extreme about civil obedience or disobedience... What we've been seeing the last 18 months is people's hearts coming up against, do I just follow Jesus when I agree, or do I really trust him and submit when I don't? I'm sure the first century community did not applaud and love Jesus' commands to love our enemies. when they were being persecuted and killed by their enemies. I'm sure they weren't going, oh, I was hoping he'd say that. (laughs) See, the ethics and the life and the values of the kingdom of God sometimes overlap with culture because there's common grace in our society, but many times they don't. And it's in those moments that we actually show ourselves to be his disciples. And it's down to whether you trust him. Whether you trust he knows best. Whether you trust he's got good things for you. Whether you trust that his ways actually lead to human flourishing. It comes back do you trust him? So that's the Bible. But the second question is well, what is biblical authority? Or to reframe that question, how is it authoritative? How is it authoritative? Because we've often stumbled around this as well. When we look at the authority of the Bible in areas such as racism or systemic racism, about do we suspend services on Sunday or not? Do we disobey our government or not? Do we follow our sexual desires? or not? Do we wear masks or not? Do we get vaccinated or not? We have to go, well, how do we work out what is authoritative in the Bible? In which way is it authoritative? And what's helped me greatly understand this is actually my own legal background. I was trained and practiced at law in England, and England is a very unusual legal system versus the rest of Europe. The rest of Europe have a legal system which is codified. It's called civil law. It's like a reference book of laws. You go, hmm, I wonder what the law is about theft. You look at the index, and it'll go, theft, page 1493. And you go there, and it has beautifully laid out the law on theft. And we will sometimes want the Bible to be like that. We will turn the Bible into a, theolo- a theological reference book. We want it to be like, I need a verse on this. What to do about masks? I need, I need a verse. I need a verse. What is it going to say? I need a verse. The problem is the Bible is not like that. It's more like the English legal system. And believe me, that's not fun. The English legal system is not codified. It's what they call case law. Case law is 400,000 books detailing the story of how law has been applied to situations in the UK over centuries and centuries and centuries. So when you want to know something about theft, you can't find a codified verse. You have to read the stories. You have to read the stories of how judges and courts have interpreted theft. In this example, when a cow was stolen in the 16th century by one farmer from the other, when his wife had promised him the cow, but was she buying, you know, all this kind of stuff. That was my legal training. And you go to court with this case from the 16th century, but then someone else will go, but what about this story? This case. And the law has to actually come out of the stories of the past. The difference between codification and case. And we wish the Bible was given to us as a codified authority. That's why... Up until recently, most of the theologians in the books were written called systematic theology, which would take the Bible and codify it so you can get books out there, which I think are really helpful, really good. I'm not dissing them at all. But in the indices, you'll see, oh, great, I want to know what heaven is. And so heaven is chapter 3. And so we'll look at all the different verses on chapter 3. The problem is, that's not how God gave us Scripture. God gave us Scripture not as codified authority, but story authority. Story authority. Most of the Bible does not, most of the Bible does not consist of rules and regulations like a moral code. There are, of course, absolute codes in there, but they're in like 0.1 percent of the whole Bible. They're important. The Ten Commandments. They're good. And Jesus expands on them in the Sermon on the Mount. They're clear and obvious. But most of the teaching, most of the Bible is about story. In fact, most of Jesus' teachings were not commands and regulations. They were story. They were parable. None of his parables ever contained a command, a moral principle. They painted the story of the people of God and the kingdom of God that we could enter into that story and live out as followers of Jesus. N.T. Wright, in his writings, does a great job explaining this more and more, that we can enter into the authoritative scriptures in this kind of way. He describes the Bible in a way that you might understand a six-act Shakespeare play. I've got a little diagram on the screen. I'm loving my diagrams this series, aren't I? (laughs) He said the Bible is story authoritative in the first five and a half acts. It shows you, like a Shakespeare play, this is what has come before. This is what the story has been. This is the revelation of the author. This is how the characters have lived out this play up until now. These are the plot twists and turns, and these are the missteps, and these are the crowning moments. And then you get to the end, and the story has an end, which we are given as well. But in the middle, we are like Shakespearean actors without a script to follow, but we've only got what's come before and come after. And we are asked to take the stage and be consistent, but be consistent improvisers. This is improv that we don't know. We can't turn to a verse in the Bible and say, what do you do about masks? You don't turn to a verse in the Bible and say, what do you do about this or that? But what you do, you soak yourself in the story of Scripture, the story of the Old Testament, the story of the, of the Gospels, the story of the early church. And when you're so soaked in this story, you come onto stage and you're faced with these new situations and then you know, oh, I know, I know how to continue the story through this situation. I've been shaped by the story. The Holy Spirit transforms me into an actor on stage like Jesus. And I know, I know exactly what it's going to mean here. There's not a killer verse that's going to tell me, but there's a story in which I know I'm going to live into. And if I don't live into it consistently, there's going to be people in the audience who go, boo, what are you doing? That isn't the story. That's not the Jesus people. That doesn't seem to fit at all with the beautiful stories and parables of Jesus. The self-sacrifice, the love that he's followed. That we are to live into the kingdom of God, not through just finding a devotional grab verse from the Bible. Or not just going, what's the killer verse for this? And sometimes there are killer verses on the big stuff. But the rest of it is living into the story as trained actors, children of God, transformed into Jesus, who we know what it means to live out this story in our city, in this age. N.T. Wright summarizes it. It's a big quote, but it's a goodie. He says, This story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's heads or offer them a list of doctrines, And they can duck or avoid it, or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story, though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview, or better still, a God view. That actually is what the parables are about. They offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were in already. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator breathing through his word. Isn't it beautiful then that God has given us so many different authors to breathe out different sides of this beautiful story? So many different genres that connect with the poets and the mathematicians in different ways. That we can all step onto the stage in this cultural moment to live out the story of Jesus. But we have to do so with consistency. We have to do so that people looking afar who know the story would go, Yep, that's consistent. That's consistent with a self-sacrificing Jesus who says, Better it is to think of others more than yourself. That's consistent. Oh, that's consistent with Jesus who said, Love your enemy. Absolutely consistent. Oh, that's consistent, etc., etc., etc. We know, don't we, when something happens that is really inconsistent. And I think, actually, I'll say, The last 18 months I've seen beautiful examples of consistency as we've approached lots of these issues and I've seen disastrous inconsistency. In the name of Jesus, it smells and looks nothing like the Jesus story. I was reminded last night again how something can be so inconsistent with the beauty of the story that has come before. My wife and I and Ash and Sibs went to see a movie and there's been a, a story over generations that we've lived into And then we watched this story last night, and suddenly someone decided to not be consistent with the story. And if you've ever seen the new James Bond movie, you know what I'm talking about. I wept at the inconsistency of the story. That is not Bond. But at times I've looked at the church and gone, that is not the people of Jesus. Not in either in what you're saying or how you're going about it. We all have to look at ourselves. and That's the beauty of the calling. That's the beauty of our task. is to immerse ourselves in the story. Not as some theological reference book. Not to try and find a moral principle in every single verse but to actually engage and soak yourself in it upon layer and layer, that when you step into a new context, you don't need the lines because you are the person of Jesus in that moment. And so finally, this is the Bible. This is how the Bible is authoritative for us today. And then what is biblical interpretation? The final one, I'm going to be quick, But in order to soak ourselves in the story, we have to read it well. We have to read it well. And when I took a class at seminary on what is called hermeneutics, interpreting the Bible well, it saved my faith. I'd been around churches and people and my own interpretation of Scripture that was really not well. Taking things out of context, proof texting things, reading things into the Scripture that wasn't there, etc. So I want to give you, in three minutes, a summary of biblical hermeneutics. (laughs) That as we approach these topics over the next few weeks, this is how we're doing it. This is how we approach the authority of Scripture. And we have three rules. The first is this, authorial intent authorial intent we have to honor that God breathed his scripture through humanity in a particular time in a particular place and therefore we have to honor what it meant to the original authors any literature has to be understood in the terms of the author otherwise we're guessing what does this mean there's a little picture which sums up what does this mean Is this a six or a nine? Well, the only way of knowing is what did the graffiti artist mean it to be? We have to get inside the mind of the original author. And we do that through a few tools. That if we don't have these tools, we will misinterpret scripture. The first is this what is the literary genre of this text? Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it prophetic? We have to understand what is the original genre of the text. Otherwise, we'll misinterpret what the original author meant. There's been lots of work done on the genre of texts. And I am so pleased that we have scholars and teachers that say, oh, we know throughout archaeology, through historical study, that this, these, the Gospels, are history. We should read them as history. They meant them to be history. You can't just say they're metaphorical. No, Luke kind of says, this is an historical eyewitness account of Jesus. You can't flatten it out because we don't like it. But equally, when it comes to things like Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation, we have to go, what is the genre of this text? Otherwise, we'll misunderstand it. There are different views of this, and there are so many people who don't realize there are, these are difficult texts to understand the genre, and there are different scholars with different views of how we interpret these texts, with a very high view of Scripture. In fact, the more you wrestle with the genre, the higher your view of Scripture. And so I personally have come to the conclusion, based on what I've read and researched, that Genesis 1 and 2 is not a scientific book answering the questions how And when but it's theological about why and who. Still authoritative but in the genre. Now other people disagree and that's totally fine. We each have a high view of scripture. Same with revelation. I've thankfully been blessed with realizing that I can read it in the genre which it came which is apocalyptic literature filled with Old Testament visions sorry references to Old Testament images. So to understand what these beasts and these dragons are all about, it's apocalyptic literature, which in summary means that you use images that were known in the first century to represent truths. So in our our political system, we have elephants and donkeys, right? To represent the different political parties. Well, that's what's going on in in Revelation. They're using pictorial images that meant something of the first century. The beast was Rome. That was the popular way of referring to Rome, as the beast. And the cultural empire of the time And and all of these images were soaked In Old Testament language And images So to understand it, it's like, oh, now I get it Now I can understand it I need a lot of help to understand it But that's okay, that's why the Bible says we have teachers It's okay that we need teachers To understand the Bible at times So that's number one Genre Number two is what stage of God's story is it The Bible Is a Ongoing revelation of God in Genesis 1, then to burning bush and things like this, and then you've got the temple, and then you've got Jesus. And Jesus says, look, the revelation of the Old Testament carries forward, but not in the same way that some would think. A lot of it is fulfilled in me, and a lot of it continues. And Jesus helps us sort out which is fulfilled in him and which bits continue. So he says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it say, do, do not murder. Well, I tell you, yeah, let's not murder still, but it goes deeper. But some of the laws of the sacrificial system are no longer moving forward because they've been fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So when we read the Old Testament, we don't see it as authoritative in the same way as the New Testament in the sense that we can't take anything from the Old Testament and just go, well, that applies to me now. Because we have to read it through the lens of Jesus. So any arguments for or against anything that just says, Leviticus says this, like, dude... That's kind of the basic error of biblical interpretation, whether you're using it for anything or against anything. The New Testament is our era, and so we look at it and go, "Okay, that is absolutely authoritative for me." And then, thirdly, in the, in the biblical interpretation bit, it is the authorial intention is cultural instructions have to be reinterpreted for us today, even in the New Testament. There's a great example of this in Corinthians and Romans, where Paul encourages one another to greet one another with a holy kiss. That's not introducing a new dating system. That is culturally how you warmly greet one another. But I would suggest we should warmly greet each other in a different way than suddenly leaning in for a kiss. So there are situations where we have to go, the essence behind this, we understand, is authoritative. We have to reinterpret it in line of culture. Okay, so that's number. That's the first thing: is authorial intention. Very quickly, then number two. I think I've done them all. Look, look at that! I've done them all. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> but as we come in to land the plane here, I want to invite us all that this really is an invitation. To rediscover the beauty of his word. To rediscover the Bible. To firstly immerse yourself in the story of it. Not to think that every little story has to have a moral Christian value to it. Not everything that Moses, Joseph, Joshua did is worth emulating. We have to live into the fullness of the story. Not just have favorite verses Because they're incomplete without immersing ourselves in the characters. Immersing ourselves in the overall narrative. Immersing ourselves in the different ways that God has revealed himself throughout all of Scripture. That we can bring that to bear on the circumstances of our lives. Let's enjoy Scripture again. And just bathe yourself in the story. And then secondly, let's enjoy the task that he's given us today is to be immersed in the story as the people of Jesus, to know the end and what the future is going to be, but to realize we've been given the privilege and honor and duty to take the stage as characters in the great story of Jesus, to bring to bear the things of Jesus and his people in the circumstances we find ourselves in LA, that people in the audience go, so that's what it looks like to be the people of Jesus. Not in a way that is in discontinuity that people go, really? You look nothing like Jesus. But the people who stand up and say, we know our Jesus. We know the great stories of self-sacrifice and love. We know the great stories of submitting to him even when we don't like it. We know the great stories of what it means to lay a life down that others may live. We know the story. Of what it means to be the life-giving salt and light of Jesus. And though the Bible doesn't give us every single answer, we know what it means to live into every situation as salt and light of King Jesus. This is our privilege. This is our calling. To be the aroma of Jesus. To live out the story. The true story of the Savior of the world. Let's stand together. I'd love us just to close our eyes and just offer ourselves again to King Jesus and his story. There's going to be times when we fully agree. But I want to invite you this morning to say, Jesus, even though it's going to be hard, I submit to those areas that are difficult and maybe I don't even understand. But I trust you. I just felt the Holy Spirit give me a word. Fear. Fear. Fear if you trust Jesus. You fear the consequences. And that's why he says I will. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And I will be with you Always. And he's never more close to you than in obedience to him. So as we worship, let's surrender our lives again to King Jesus. To live into his story and to see his kingdom come.